This may be the most unusual press conference we've ever had, and some of you may unfortunately feel like you're back in school because what I'm about to do may seem like a history uh, lesson. And if it's got a title, the title is Fake Monuments, Fake History. Um, I actually want to start on the, uh, my own statement, but not at the beginning. I want to go through some of the chronology first. So in 1860 and 1861, 11 rebellious states led by South Carolina on December 20th, 1860, and followed by Mississippi on January 9th, 19, 18, uh, should be 1861, seceded from the Union. Uh, so that's a typo in there. The states rationalized their action as states' rights. The reason for succession was their fear, the real reason was their fear that the presidency of Abraham Lincoln would lead to the abolition of slavery. After the war ended, Confederate sympathizers would attempt to rewrite history claiming that the reason for the rebellion was the preservation of the autonomy of the states, not slavery. On April 12th and 13th, the first battle of the Civil War took place outside Charleston, South Carolina, when Confederate troops attacked the United States of America by firing on Fort Sumter. The United States Army surrendered to the Army of the Confederate States of America in that action. This was an act of rebellion, sedition, and treason, which would eventually lead to the loss of 620,000 lives. A year later, in April to July of 1862, over 1,000 captured traitors of the Confederate Army were moved to Camp Randall in Madison, Wisconsin. The transfer basically took place in April of 1862. Over the next two months, 139 prisoners died from their wounds and disease, or both. One prisoner was shot to death by a guard. All the prisoners were buried in Mark Gray's in the city's Forest Hill Cemetery. Three years later, General Robert E. Lee, the commander of the traitor, traitorous troops, surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Epipotamix. From 1865 to 1877 was the period of Reconstruction when the U.S. government maintained control of the rebellious states, ensuring that former black slaves had civil rights, participated in government, while southern infrastructure was slowly rebuilt. In the late 1890s and 1910, as the white supremacists regained control of southern state governments, black codes, or as they came to be known, Jim Crow laws, were adopted. We think of them in terms of separate restrooms, dining, and seating facilities. But the real objective was economic subjugation. Consequently, blacks were limited in their ability to own businesses or property, lease land, sign contracts, vote, and their children could be apprenticed if the parents were in debt. In addition, of course, convicts were forced into labor and could be rented out. And let me point out that 
if you didn't have a job, you could be arrested for vagrancy. And, of course, you could only have a job in, in some areas if you were to sign these horrendous contracts. And then once convicted of vagrancy, the result was a new version of slavery and a greater hatred from poor whites who found that they had to compete with this new form of slavery in the labor market. These conditions existed until the 1960s. Now, in 1894, the United Daughters of the Confederacy is formed. Then in 1915, the Ku Klux Klan outlawed after the Civil War, reemerges as domestic terrorists. The growth of the KKK is accelerated by the racist film Birth of a Nation, which is released that year. In approximately 1931, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, a racist and bigoted organization, is part of their national strategy of propaganda and in a determination to rewrite history, providing a favorable interpretation of the Civil War, installs a monument in Forest Hill Cemetery honoring the treasonous rebels. At that point, it's been over 60 years since the Civil War has ended. The monument has no event connection to the events at Camp Randall or the actual burial of the Confederate soldiers. It is not the first time that the UDC distributes a historic, disturbs a historic site in their effort to rewrite history. In 1939, the film Gone with the Wind is released, promulgating the revisionist history of slavery in a format known as the Lost Cause, a romanticized view of antebellum South glorifying slavery, subjugating women, and depicting southern men as honorable while northern men were vicious, abusive, and vile. 1981, 116 years after the end of the Civil War, a new plaque honoring the rebellious soldiers buried at Forest Hill Cemetery is placed at Confederate's rest with private money. As far as we know, it is the only time someone has been allowed to erect a remembrance not related to a burial that was part of a funeral or part of a funeral uh, authorized by the cemetery deed or a deceased or the deceased since the United Daughters of the Confederacy installed their monument in 1931. In 2017, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which researched and lists organizations which espouse bigotry and hate, note, and then you've got a lengthy excerpt from the Southern Poverty Law Center's findings on the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which I won't bother uh, to read. Now, the focus on the Confederate monuments is the history of slavery. However, the story is bigger than that. With the end of Reconstruction in 1877 comes the Southern effort to return to the antebellum years and to honor the lost cause. It produced a legal, economic, and social legacy of oppression that was to last a century. It manifested itself in two ways. First was the legal framework, and then there was the historical narrative. 
the black codes or Jim Crow laws. To ensure the subjugation of blacks to retain as much of the slave economy as possible, the individual southern states began the enactment of what we refer to in the 20th century as Jim Crow laws. Some Americans are aware of those that required social separations since they were highlighted in the civil rights movement of the late 1950s and the 1960s. African Americans were required to sit in the back of the bus, use separate restroom facilities, could not dine in white restaurants, or stay in white hotels. There were also black codes designed to continue the economic enslavement of blacks. They were to contain, continue unabated through World War II and legally did not end until the U.S. Congress adopted the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Black codes banned African Americans from holding jobs or at least required licenses which they could not obtain. These Jim Crow laws requiring the signing of annual employment contracts, and if a clause was violated, no matter how late into the year, the employee forfeited all wages for the year, of course, leaving the individual now indebted to the employer. Laws were adopted making the lack of employment a crime, resulting in vagrancy convictions which led to imprisonment and assignment to forced labor as the black convicts were rented out to local businesses. Indebted parents were offered the opportunity to free themselves of debt if they signed apprenticeship contracts for their children, putting the children into another form of slavery. The repression and economic tyranny not only destroyed the black family, but it further fueled white racism. As this new form of black enslavement spread and drove down the cost of labor, it resulted in lowering wages for all workers, particularly the majority of the population, which was low-income whites. Struggling to find gainful employment as farmhands, sharecroppers, construction workers, or service jobs, the poor white population blamed their plight on African Americans who were doing this work for virtually no income beyond primitive shelter and limited amounts of food. While the Black Codes were adopted, a new propaganda effort was initiated designed to retell the story of the South. The pre-Civil War economy was healthy. Everyone was at peace and the slaves were happy. That was the lie. Organizations began to flourish after Reconstruction to portray the genteel image of the South. One such group was the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the UDC, which raised funds and erected hundreds of monuments and statues in the South and the North. These memorials were installed 50, 60 years and more after the end of the Civil War, a term, by the way, they refused to use. UDC refers to the treasonous conflict as the war between the states, so as to remove the onus of sedition and rebellion. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate group, classifies the United Daughters of the Confederacy as neo-Confederate organization. The neo-Confederate movement, I'm quoting, includes a number of organizations that generally share the goals of preserving Confederate monuments, honoring the Confederate battle flag, and lauding what is judged to be Southern culture. Many have close ties to the white supremacist League of the South. 
UDC articles praise an array of neo-Confederate ideologies such as Michael Andrew ideologues such as Michael Andrew Grissom, a number a member of two racist groups, the Council of Conservative Citizens and the League of the South. The UDC has also worked directly with these kinds of groups in erecting monuments and staging Confederate battle flag rallies. Most recently, the UDC's president, Mrs. William Wells, shared the podium with League President Michael Hill and white supremacist lawyer Kirk Lyons. The larger monument at Madison's Forest Hill Cemetery is not a Civil War monument. It was installed over 60 years after the end of the war. It is a slab of propaganda paid for by a racist organization on public property when our city was inattentive to both the new form of slavery propagated by the donors with the black codes and to the meaning of that despicable fixture honoring slavery, sedition, and oppression. We will honor our history. We will respect the dead. We make sure that our legacy is to tell the truth and to remove evidence of racist historical revisionism. We'll use, we will use the story of these monuments to tell the truth about a century of Jim Crow, economic oppression, and those like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Ku Klux Klan who spread their lies far beyond the boundaries of the rebellious states. Now, there's a number of articles that I've provided to you. Two excellent articles about these monuments, uh, which, which contain some of the material that I've gone over. One by uh, Catherine, excuse me, Karen Cox, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, the other is, is by uh, uh, W. Fitzhugh Brundage, who is on the faculty, I believe, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, a comparable article uh, about the removal of a Confederate fountain in Helena, Montana, a state which did not exist at the time of the Civil War, and an excerpt from the website of the Southern Poverty Law Center talking about the Neo-Confederates. The plaque that has already been removed, the one that was installed in 1981, I'm going to request that the State Historical Society accept it and use it to create an exhibit about the lies that were fostered for a century in the South and in the North by organizations like uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The larger monument there are, I find three acceptable solutions and I'm going to uh, ask that with the advice of the Parks Commission and the Landmarks Commission that the City Council make a decision on the disposition of, of that monument. The three choices are to totally remove it. Second option is to eradicate the section of the monument that refers to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And the third option is one that I'm leaning towards, which is to leave it in place and put next to it a more honest, an honest 
monument, which tells the story of how the United Daughters of the Confederacy have spread their lies and their denial of slavery throughout the United States of America and continue to do it to this day and recognizing that it is not a Civil War monument, that it is nothing more than a stone lie. Any questions? You Mary, this third option, as you say, is the preferred one. Well, it's the one I, I, right, no, that I'm leaning towards right now. But, but do you feel that's a, you know, that sort of uh, telling of history is appropriate in that location? Oh, definitely in that location. Uh, definitely in that location. And why is that? Why? Because, it, because that's where organizations, these neo-Confederate and racist organizations, have told their lies for a century. We have a century of lying and propaganda to combat, which has shaped this nation to this day in a most tragic fashion. You know, for those who have an inkling as to U.S. history, they know of slavery, they know of the Civil War, they know of the Civil Rights Movement, and to the conflict we have today. What they do not know is the century of lies promulgated by organizations more insidious and invidious than the Ku Klux Klan, organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who led and participated into the enactment of the Black Codes, and who have spread their false history beyond the boundaries of their own states into the state of Washington, the state of Montana, the state of Wisconsin. Were you there in 81? No, I was not. You were around. Um, do you recall when this I don't around? recall it. I do not recall it. So the city council will have the final say? I think that would be appropriate uh, for the disposition of the larger monument. Mary, you refer to the, the structure that was removed as the plaque, the original plaque, and you're saying that this additional potential removal will go through the city council. Why did you unilaterally take that initial action as opposed to going through parks? You're talking about the 81 plaque? Yes. Because it is so recent and it is just so clear that it is not part of the cemetery, and in fact, when it was put in, uh, it, was, it, it was a violation of the sanctity of the site. I mean, was anyone, including yourself, aware of that over these past, you know, 36 years and said, wait a minute, we've got a monument there that, you know, in recent, disrupts the sanctity and wasn't done in, in, in recent years, there has been discussion about it, and no action was taken other than the removal of the flagpole that flew the Confederate flag and the ending of the placement of small individual uh, uh, traitorous flags of the Confederacy on the individual grave markers. But what happened uh, a week ago Saturday prompted the, the decision of last week. Why do you have a preference for the, for the 
the clarification. Because, not, not clarification. Not clarification. The exposure of the lies. The exposure of the rewriting of American history by this ghastly racist organization that was able to sneak into our lives and into our city and into our cemetery and into our public property. Well, I do, but I doubt that that's going to make any difference. It's time for education. It's time for people to learn the history of this nation and to learn that these are not Civil War monuments or memorabilia. We would not allow the Berlin Wall to stand. We would not allow the Nazi... emblem to stand over the Brandenburg Gate, and to this day we wouldn't allow the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazis to put in a representative sign in a public place in this city. These folks are no different. They are as vicious and they lie. Mayor, do you have any concern that your public stand uh, might uh, prompt some of these groups to say, well, maybe Madison, Wisconsin is the next place we need to organize. And we, will not, we will not have our policies dictated out of the threats of racists and Nazis. How much um, would you, uh, in terms of cost of removing or replacing it, is that something you felt that about? The cost is, is of little consequence. Because it's anticipated to be a small cost or because the mission would justify For both reasons. Cost. I don't anticipate it's a significant cost to make any of these changes, and regardless of the cost, that monument is not standing alone, unanswered. It has been there for too long, and it is time that we explain to the United Daughters of the Confederacy that their century of tyranny standing alongside the Ku Klux Klan is over, and that they are going to find that there is going to be a reaction to their racism and white supremacy and we are going to finally in the next century get this country right. Mayor, you have mentioned that there have been evidently episodes of vandalism at the cemetery. Can, can you explain any of that to us? There has been uh, vandalism to the monuments and it's been removed and hopefully there will not be any other as we continue to uh, as a city make a decision what to do with with the larger one and again the smaller one uh, I think ought to go to historical society because that is part of our history not the part about the confederacy but the part about the deception and the lies and you're probably aware that, that some have opined that 
the, the presence of these grave markers and the identification of those buried there was in keeping with kind of the humane treatment of the enemy, if you will. That's not what this is. That is not at all. That is a lie. First of all, the identity of all of the soldiers is there. The graves have always been respected and remain intact. What is there is a 1931 vicious neo-Confederate monument to racism and white superiority. And the story of, its, of the history and the importance of that monument is not the Civil War, but it's the ongoing hundred years of Jim Crow laws and lies about the treason of those southern states. Are you surprised it took until um, May to, to, to ban the, the battle flags from being placed there? I think the, the reason is it was seen only through a lens of the Civil War and whether or not it was legitimate remembrances that goes back to the 1860s. Now that we understand it in the context of what they are, what those monuments were intended to do, that they were not part of the Civil War, that changes everything. And, and if that uh, realization happened, that wasn't the case in 1981, people weren't aware of I don't think they were aware of that in 1981, and uh, frankly, I, I was not aware myself of the connection between the 1931 monument and the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy. you plan on uh, putting forth a resolution? How will this uh, move through government here? Looking for a unanimous... Uh, well, we'll, what we'll do is we'll introduce a resolution for the September meeting first September meeting on the 5th, I believe it is, to refer the matter to the Parks Commission, Landmarks Commission, and ask them to make a recommendation. I would hope that they would have a joint meeting because I have a belief that the uh, testimony that will be heard uh, uh, will be repetitive. Where do you think the nation is going from here in the wake of Charlottesville and this most recent what's, weekend, Boston? What's happening, what's happening here in Madison is going to be repeated throughout the United States. It will be more challenging in the South because many of the southern state legislatures have adopted laws that say you cannot locally make a decision on the removal of these false idols without state legislative permission. But for those of us who are free to act, um, I think we'll, we'll see this uh, in, 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 in the remaining uh, 
38, 39 states. Mayor, the president has anticipated to make a remark to the nation tonight. What would you like to hear from him as it relates to... Uh, I have no expectations for this president or, for that matter, our governor. Um, you'll remember the film Wag the Dog. Um, it's, it's clear to me that uh, the president is, is planning on using... Uh, foreign crises to divert our attention. We know that in his heart he has nothing significant or substantial to say about this. And the inability of Governor Walker to either respond to the inadequacies of Donald Trump or uh, to say that he will work conscientiously to examine every such monument in the state of Wisconsin to repair the truth is is very disappointing. We rescheduled the one o'clock meeting for one thirty. That it? Thank you. Final words. They are not Civil War monuments, and I apologize if I've ever referred to them that way.